Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is Tom Morris, the author of The Everyday Patriot. Tom is one of the world's top public philosophers and pioneering business thinkers. He's the author of over 30 groundbreaking books and is a legendary speaker. He serves as chairman of the Morris Institute for Human Values and is the author of True Success, If Aristotle Ran General Motors, The Art of Achievement, Plato's Lemonade Stand, and many others. In this episode, you can expect to learn what it means to be a patriot, what the ancient Greeks meant by the phrase, I'm a citizen of the world, why citizenship is a moral calling, how to perfect your piece of the world, wisdom and politics, and so much more. I thoroughly enjoyed this one, and as you'll hear, Tom's enthusiasm for wisdom is truly contagious. So without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious Tom Morris. All right, Tom, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. <laughs> it's great to be here. Well, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure. I was, as I was just stating uh, before I hit record, lots of respect for your work over the decades as a public philosopher, practical wisdom, you know, spreading it through your books and talks. So it's, it's a real pleasure. And today we're going to be discussing the book, The Everyday Patriot, which I really loved. I, I've just went through it the last uh, few days and uh, really appreciated this book. So I'm excited to get into it. But before we do, we generally start with um, a question of maybe how you initially came to have an interest in, say, philosophy. If you could take us way back to the beginning of this search. <laughs> well, it's funny because I used to always get in trouble as a kid for asking questions about everything. <laughs> you know, why this, why that? My mother thought I was just being rebellious, you know, but I was just trying to understand. And I remember the the one surgery I had as a kid, tonsils and adenoids, you know, that back when I grew up, they took that out for almost every kid. Uh, they couldn't get me to sleep, pushing me to the operating room. They'd given me all these drugs. But I was leaning up on one arm, asking questions about where we were going and what we were going to do and how it was going to work. <laughs> so uh, my mother thought, oh, okay, here's a lawyer, a budding lawyer. So she Nobody in my family had ever been to college uh, in my extended family. And my mother told me in high school there was no money for me to go, so I should just figure out what kind of job I wanted to do. But she had sort of hidden in her heart the dream she really wished I could be a lawyer, you know, because she she thought of me as because I ask all these questions, you know, I would be great at, you know, sort of examining people on the stand or something. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, I got a a scholarship to the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill that I didn't even know about. It was a free ride for four years, all expenses paid. And that got me a free ride to Yale for graduate school for six years and two PhDs. And it was like for a poor kid from Durham, North Carolina, it was just magical to be introduced to all the wonders of the world of higher education. I had two professors at UNC Chapel Hill, one a religion professor with a class of 250 kids and one a philosophy professor. Orthodox Jewish rabbi teaching philosophy of science, a Hungarian guy. 
And both the religion professor and the philosophy professor were so mesmerizing. I forgot to take notes in class. I mean, and, and I had been a good student in high school. I had a good memory. I, I could learn stuff, but I didn't have a life of the mind. These, these two professors awakened me to the life of the mind, the life of what Aristotle called wonder. And I thought to myself, well, I want to do this for other people. This is the most amazing transformative experience to go from just memorizing stuff for tests to, to go from that to just being curious about everything. And so I became a professor to awaken other people to the life of the mind. And I, I was a professor at Notre Dame for 15 years, having an eighth of student body in my classes. And t- to this day, I, I retired from teaching in 1995 to be a public philosopher. But to this day, I'll get emails last week, two different people. You were my favorite professor at Notre Dame. Uh, That's what made the Notre Dame experience for me. One guy who's head of IT at a major international company, he said, it was your class that taught me how to think creatively. And I'll go into a room, into a meeting, and I'll start asking questions that nobody else is asking. And they say, dude, how how do you know to ask stuff like this? And he said, philosophy 101 at Notre Dame. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love it. I am, uh, yeah, super grateful for you sharing some some background there, and uh, it reminds me of um, a couple uh, philosophy professors that had on the podcast probably a year ago now, but the authors of the the Good Life Method, and them talking about how every single student takes philosophy one hundred and one. Yeah, and what a what a great idea. That is, um, it is. Yeah. yeah, So it's, uh, the students don't um, think so. I mean, it's funny because (laughs) at Notre Dame, they have to take two philosophy classes. They have to take intro and a higher level class, but they didn't have to take my intro. There were a lot of people teaching intro, but, uh, the first day of class, they're like this. (laughs) What the hell am I doing in a philosophy class? I want to be a business major. I want to be a chemist. I want to be an engineer, you know? And so there's this hostile audience, you know? So my job was to win them over so that maybe it would be their favorite class in freshman year, and maybe it would be their favorite class in four years at Notre Dame. And to do that, man, I had to do heart and soul, not just the mind. I had to come in there like it's a, well, they, by the second, third week of class, here's the here's the danger I faced. By the second or third week, they thought it was a Broadway show, a one-man show, and they were season ticket mm-hmm. holders. It was a Tom Morris show. I was going to do... <laughs> Four minutes of craziness every class to grab their attention for the rest of the the hour. Um, I had to convince them, no, it's more like outward bound for the mind. I'm the the native guide. I've been up the mountain many times before, but you guys, you're going to have to climb. You're going to have to use your own strength, your own skill. I'll show you how to do it, but this is a thing we're doing together. This is an adventure we're on together. And that took a while because they just... You know, it was an entertaining class. I tried to engage them in every possible way. And so they wanted to be entertained. But almost before they knew it, they loved climbing that mountain with me. And that was Mm. my ultimate goal because I knew at the end of the semester, they're on their own. They may or may not take a second class from me, but I wanted to give them not just ideas, but skills of thinking that would take them through the rest of their lives. Well, beautiful. I'm curious. You know, this PhD program that, that you went to, it was philosophy and religious studies. Yeah. If you could remember, you know, back then you're applying to different programs and things like that. Yeah. 
What made you decide on that one and why philosophy yeah. and religious studies? Most people probably take, you know, one particular path. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I was interested in both things. When I was, when I got interested in philosophy at UNC Chapel Hill, that was a time in the history of philosophy where all we were doing was analytical thinking. We were doing conceptual analysis and rigorous argumentation, but we weren't messing with any of the big ideas. We, we were fighting over the small ideas, right? And mm. that was interesting. I was a tennis player at the time. I played four hours a day. And it was like the lob and slam of argument, you know? I was fascinated by that. But then on the religion side of things, it was all the big questions. And I thought, wow, I mm. want both these things. I don't want to have to choose. Um, as an undergraduate, I ended up majoring in religion because that was the biggest itch at the time to get to some of these cosmic questions, these life questions. And so I applied initially to religious studies graduate programs. And the number one in the country was uh, Yale, uh, uh, tied with, I think, Chicago at the time for, for number one. And so I thought, well, that's where I want to go. I want to go to the top department in, in, in the country, in the world, actually. And they had a guy in philosophy of religion, which is what I wanted to do. But they didn't tell me he was going to retire right before I got there and not work with Steve <laughs> anymore. So I ended up taking philosophy courses on the side. And one day, the head of, of graduate studies in philosophy at Yale said, switch departments, dude. And I said, why? <laughs> he said, you're really good at philosophy. We want you in our department. I said, no, I really like religious studies, too. He said, all right, listen, one guy before you did a double. And if we support you with the dean, we can maybe get a second case of that. So you'll be doing double exams, double courses, two directors on your dissertation. It'll be hard stuff, man. And you'll be doing it in a, probably a six-year time frame. And I said, all right, I'm all for it. So that's that's how I ended up in the in the in the double the double program. Wow, that, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I'm I'm curious in the way of um, you know, in search of wisdom, this yeah. this search piece of it. Yeah. Do you remember back then? It's of of what you were maybe searching for? Did you have some sort of idea at the end of this six years, I'll have X, Y, and Z or greater understanding of this? Was there a, you know, a question that grabbed a hold of you and wouldn't let go? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a religious family and then I departed from that because I was in a Baptist church and I ended up being a guitarist in a rock band and uh, <laughs> they didn't believe in that. And that was bad for my business. So I stopped going to the church. And my dad at one point said to me, why don't you go to church anymore? I said, the church is full of hypocrites. And he said, can you think of a better place for them to be? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's an interesting perspective. My dad was this natural philosopher. He was a high school graduate who read books constantly his whole life. So I grew up in this 800-square-foot rented house on a dirt street that ended up being paved, and the house was full of books by Plato and Aristotle and Montaigne and Pascal. And my dad was reading this stuff, and he'd tuck me into bed at night and say, um, you know, life is supposed to be a series of adventures. The one you're on now is preparing you for the next one, often in ways you can't even imagine. Or another mm -hmm. night he would say, now, now, Tommy, when you get older and you find a job, do it as long as, number one, you love it. And number two, you think you have something distinctive to contribute. If either of those things changes, you should make a change. 
And maybe another night he would say, oh, I, tonight I'm going to teach you how to relax. Okay, squeeze your feet, your muscles and your feet as tight as you can, and then let them go. And then he would work his way up. My, now, this was in the 1950s, right? This was before anybody was doing this stuff. And so my dad just kind of imbued this kind of wonderment in me about everything. And mm. when I was undergraduate philosophy, when I was graduate school even, mostly I was just cultivating tools, finding my tools for finding my way. And there would be questions like, you know, is there God or not? If so, what, why is there so much evil in the world? Um, there's this one guy, there's this one guy in graduate school. I decided there's this one guy. I read his new book came in the Yale Divinity Library. Now I wasn't a divinity student. I was religious studies and philosophy, but I'd go hang out at divinity school at a good library. One day a book came in the library uh, and it was, it was all about modal logic and its application to religious questions. I was like, really? You know, logic about necessity and possibility and possibility. And I remember it was one of the most difficult books I'd read at the time, but I stood up at the new bookshelf and I read most of the book standing up at the shelf. I was so hungry to learn this stuff. Wow. More tools, more tools. I did my dissertation. Half my dissertation was on identity statements, A equals B. So I'm I'm looking at Frege and I'm looking at Saul Kripke and I'm looking at all this esoteric stuff and I'm using it, applying it to religious belief in ways that people just say, what, what, you know, what, what is he doing? So I've always been this guy, the adventures my dad told me about. Okay. I don't care if anybody has crossed that boundary ever. I'm going to cross it if it looks interesting to me. I don't care if anybody's ever used modal logic to look at distinctively Christian doctrines. I'm going to do it. And they told me at Yale I had the biggest audience for my dissertation defense in the history of either department, like people would gather around a car wreck. You know, there was just this <laughs> morbid fascination. What is this guy doing? You know, um, and it was awesome. And so I got to Notre Dame. And I was able to do pioneering work in philosophy of religion because philosophy of religion at the time, Joshua, was just existence and nature of God, maybe not even nature so much, existence of God, problem of evil, religious language, is it meaningful? Um, there were no other topics. And so I started pioneering all these new topics in philosophy of religion just because I could. It, like at Yale, you know, it was like everybody was sort of, why is he doing this? Same, same thing at Notre Dame. And now, decades later, the ideas I started introducing as a first-year assistant professor, it's a field unto itself. It's a flourishing field in philosophy. So when I got to the point that I felt a sense of when businesses started calling me, and this was like, talk about a new adventure. Um, hey, Tom, did the great philosophers have anything to say about success? Well, it's not the kind of stuff I studied at Yale. I mean, let me look into it. Hey, hey, Tom. Could you come in and give a talk to our group on ethics? And rather than say, well, I'm not the ethics guy, I, I said, okay, I'll put together something. Sort of the secret of me being a philosopher is somebody asked me a question and asked me to look into it. And I say, never. I'm not the guy for that. I say, okay, let, let's see what, what happens, right? Where, where can I find some breadcrumbs? So that's what I was doing as an undergraduate and graduate. I didn't go in with preconceived, a uh, whole set of questions that I'm going to find the answers to. I went in with this whole adventurous mind and curiosity about the context in which we all live. So years later, I'm in this little seminar with Lezek Kolakowski, a 
Poland. Uh, he was the chief communist theorist in Poland until he was converted to Catholicism. Then his life was in danger. So he ends up at Yale teaching a seminar on Blaise Pascal. And Pascal seemed to have this sense that things we do make sense only in the context they're in, and that this can vary context to context. Like you wouldn't show up at a formal dinner in a ratty t-shirt, you know, and I used to tell my kids that trying to express the idea of appropriateness, you know, wouldn't it be appropriate for a dog to wear a tuxedo, you know? (laughs) Oh, yeah. And uh, so Pascal sort of explained to me context, and I wanted to understand the context of human life. What's the big picture for what it's all about? And you can't identify wisdom for your journey unless you know what your journey is. You know, what counts as wisdom for this particular journey in this particular context? And so that's the thing that sort of animated me a little bit as an undergraduate and even more as a, as a graduate student. I love it. And I've got a question for you in a bit around this perspective and in context. But let me ask one final question, if I could, sure. related to this Maybe like discerning our way, you know, finding our particular path in life. Uh, I'm curious for any any listeners that are out there, like you've mentioned the the adventure. So you're a professor at Notre Dame, been there 15 years. Many people might be looking at, at tenure and things like that. And, yeah. you, you know, you stick around there. How do you, you know, for any listeners that is maybe thinking and, has has one of these difficult questions of discerning a particular path this way or that way. How do you differentiate maybe this is a call to adventure yeah. or this is just like the grass is greener on the other side type of thing? <laughs> right, right. Absolutely. That's a big, that's a big question. Well, you know, it's funny because I started off a uh, tenure track assistant professor. They told me, you know, you, to get tenure at Notre Dame, you have one book with a great university press and 10 articles. Well, when I was up for tenure, I had 10 books and 40 articles because I couldn't shut up. Basically, I was just this endlessly <laughs> curious guy. And so I went from assistant to associate with tenure to full professor to teaching two days a week with 12 teaching assistants who graded all the papers. And when I decided to leave, people said, who would leave a job like this? You got a guaranteed job for life. You work two hours on Monday and two hours on Wednesday. and You get paid a full salary. And it's funny because I didn't think I would ever leave Notre Dame. Um, they wanted to be number one in the world in philosophy of religion. That was kind of my thing at the time. So, hey. Um, the best people in the world on sabbatical would come to be with us for a year or a semester. It was like, Mm. you know, why would I want to go anyplace else? And yet when these businesses started asking me to give talks, and I realized that the people in the room weren't just taking notes for an exam, they were having revelations and insights that would help them make their lives better right away. And when I started going to audiences of 1,000 and 2,000 and 5,000 and 10,000 people and saw them giving standing ovations to the wisdom of the philosophers that just wouldn't stop, it was almost like my rock music days where people are on their feet and they're yelling and whistling. And and I'm thinking, this is obviously needed in our culture right now. There's obviously a hunger for real thought, real wisdom. There's a lot of faux wisdom. There's a lot of counterfeit wisdom behind so many best-selling books for the last 30 years, right? People saying what others want to hear, people saying what 
is sort of in the broad neighborhood of maybe the truth, but there's no precision. There's no conceptual um, uh, adequacy. Uh, there's no responsive intellectual responsibility behind so much of that stuff. You know, just people are shooting up fireworks and everybody's saying, yay. And, and all of a sudden here I come trying to bring people the real thing and they're just as excited. Well, maybe the world needs more of that. And guess what? There are a lot of good professors at a place like Notre Dame and at a lot of places. But how many public philosophers were there in the 1980s and the early 90s? I didn't know of one. I mean, there was Mortimer Adler who who wrote books for a broad audience. And I had lunch with him once with a bunch of graduate students. His approach to philosophy was philosophy is skeet shooting. Whenever a graduate student at the table said anything, he tried to shoot it down as fast as he possibly could. And so everybody (laughs) was scared to say anything, right? I'm thinking this is the way to get people to philosophia, love wisdom. I wanted to cultivate, if somebody said something stupid, it was usually around the block from something wise. And I wanted to help them take those few steps and make that turn, not just pull out my shotgun and go pull, you know, blast. And so Mortimer and I have very different attitudes about how to how to spread um, philosophy in the world. And so I started being having the sense that I was supposed to do this. And it was not at all a grass is greener thing because I loved Notre Dame. I loved my students. I loved every day in class. It was a lot like a Broadway show. It was a lot like the best outward bound experience you've ever had in your life. Who would leave that? Who would ever want to leave that? There is no greener grass. But I felt a sense of obligation to go Mm -hmm. do more of what I was getting a taste of. Why should people have to go to a great university? to be able to philosophize. Very few people after the age of 22 have the means or the time to go to a great university for two years or four years or six years. Why don't I bring it to them? Why don't I bring philosophy to people where they live and help them learn how to do this on their own and with their friends and in the context in which they work? And that just seemed like a magical thing. And so people said, how do you know they're still going to be asking you six months from now to do these speeches. How do you know? You got, you've given up 20 years of guaranteed income. How do you know? How do you know? How do you know? And I just said, all I know is I'm supposed to do this. Mm-hmm. I think the only security in life is living your proper adventure. That's the only thing that's secure is you being you and doing what you can for the good of others as well as yourself. And so here I am, you know, almost 30 years later, still doing it. <laughs> I absolutely uh, love it. And I'm excited. Let's get into this um, book a little bit. We generally start with maybe defining terms and and that type of stuff. So how should we maybe define or or think about this term patriot? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The new book. There, There you go. The Everyday Patriot. How to be a great American now. I see the American flag right behind you, Josh. Um, my wife asked me, why are you using the word... Uh, patriot in the title because that's such a controversial word these days. And I said, yeah, that's kind of the reason. (laughs) Because one of my jobs as a philosopher is to reclaim important concepts from modern misuse, like success. My first trade book after 10 or so or 12 academic books, my first trade book was called True Success, 
a new philosophy of excellence. I want to reclaim the concept of success for what it's supposed to be. It's not about money and power and fame and status. It's about something else. I want to reclaim happiness. It's not giddiness. It's not just a good, I feel good. You know, it's something deeper than that. I want to reclaim a lot of terms in our time that are being misused and patriotism is one of them. Patriotism is not militaristic. It's not aggressive. It's not adversarial by nature. In its essence, it's something very different. So I wanted to bring people back to the, you know, middle French, to the ancient Latin, to the Greek, even before that. What throughout the centuries, and I often do etymology on new concepts when I'm working with a new concept. I'll do a lot of etymological research because I think Often in word histories, there's a lot of learned wisdom ensconced in the subtleties of language. And so I want to I ferret that out across the centuries and across cultures. And when you go back with patriotism, it just has to do with loving where you live and the people with whom you live. And love is not an adversarial concept. It's kind of the opposite <laughs> from that. And so... <laughs> It's more like growing your garden for the good of others as well as yourself. And when when I was first asked to do this book, again, Josh, you can see, you know, as a guy that started off with modal logic and philosophy of religion, writing about patriotism and, and American politics, what? So one day I get a call from Norman Lear, the famous TV producer, All in the Family, The Princess Bride, This is Spinal Tap, all those TV shows and stuff. And, uh, he and I had gotten to know each other when I was 39 and he was 69. I'm 71 now. He's 101. It's amazing. I, I've talked to him just recently. He's still sharp and doing new things. And But he called me in 2001. He said, hey, I just bought a copy of the Declaration of Independence and I paid $8.2 million for it. I said, are you kidding me? You paid too much. I got mine for four ninety five at Barnes & Noble. And he said, you know, uh, yeah, he's a funny guy. He said, uh, a guy bought a, a painting at a yard sale in Philadelphia for $4 just to get the frame. He gets it home, takes out the picture, wants to put in his own picture. As he's taking it apart, he's, something's folded up. It was one of the original Dunlap broadsides printed July 4th, 1776, one of 200 mm. to be taken around to the original colonies and read in public places aloud so people would know what was going on. And he said, I want you to write a speech about the values of the Declaration of Independence. I, I want you to travel with the Declaration and give a speech at every whistle stop. I'm going to send it across America so that people can see their nation's birth certificate. I want you to remind people of the, the values behind this nation. And I said, OK, let me go read it and I'll kind of come up with something. And two weeks later, he calls me, he says, I had to turn it over to a team of people. I'm doing some new TV shows. And the word leaked out in Hollywood, as it always does with a team. And they said, every Oscar winner wants to travel with the decoration, Norman. What's going to draw a crowd? Your friend, the philosopher, the philosopher in Wilmington, North Carolina, or three or four Oscar winners. And he said, so you may have to get to stay home after all. And I said, well, why not turn it into a little book? So, Josh, there was a little book that looks real different from the current book in 2002, privately printed to travel with Norman's copy of the Declaration. And a guy a year and a half ago, two years ago, who had bought 3,000 copies for teachers. In, he was the superintendent of schools. He said to me, why don't you why don't you think about rewriting your little 2002 book for our time? The big threat to America then was terrorism. The big threat now is, well, you know what the big threat is, all this internal divisiveness. He said, I think you, in this little book you did for Norman Lear, I think you take people back to the founding values in a way we need to be reminded of now, but 
recontextualize this whole thing of context again for our time. And so I got busy. And in three months, I totally rewrote the book. And that's the copy that, 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 that that's out now. And that's the reason I did it. Not because I'm a social political philosopher, not because I'm a historian of, of Americana. You know, uh, why would I do this? But I'm the guy who says, okay, let me look into it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a beautiful book. I, I really needed to to read it. I think it came to me at the, at okay. the right time. Um, and, and I'm curious, you know, this idea of, uh, Patriot, as we've talked about some phrase I think is, is beautiful from the ancient Greeks, people like Diogenes and, and Socrates mm-hmm. supposedly say like, I'm a citizen of the world. Yeah. What did they, what did they mean by that? Yeah. It's, it's funny because same sentence may be different meanings in the mouths of Socrates and Diogenes. With Socrates, it was almost a universal affirmation. With Diogenes, it might have been an effort to shun local responsibilities. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, so, um, it is interesting, though, because I discovered, so I, I thought I invented something. And this is very common in the history of science, history of philosophy, history of any intellectual endeavor. When I was writing the original version of The Everyday Patriot, I thought I was inventing a principle. called I called it the inner circle principle. And it, it, it was the idea that you can map, we can map our lives with a set of concentric circles, like an archery target with the bands that go out. And in the innermost circle is your own heart and mind. Get that healthy, get that wise, and you can contribute to the next circle out. Your family, your household, maybe your closest friends. You can make that circle in your life a better circle, a healthier circle. And as you get that healthy, you can contribute to your neighborhood. You can contribute to your town, your region, your state, your nation, your world. So it's like Socrates and Diogenes were the first to see that I guess the first guy to articulate this as concentric circles was the early Roman uh, Stoic named Heracles. And I just discovered that after I sort of invented it on my own. And then, oh, Heracles already thought of this. And we use it a little differently, but it's the same idea that, that Socrates and Diogenes saw the human family extends beyond the polis, the town, the city that we happen to find ourselves in. And if we think we have obligations to our neighbors, and we're right in thinking that, everybody's our neighbor in some sense. So these obligations extend. Uh, And that sense of citizenship globally, and maybe even cosmically, if there are other rational beings in other galaxies, uh, that gives us a different perspective. Where is adversarialism in all that? Where is xenophobia? Where is this aggressiveness toward other citizens of the world, of the nation, of the city? We need to rethink. So so politics in a culture of entertainment, where, you know, there was a book decades ago, Entertaining Ourselves to Death was the title. In a culture of entertainment, where everything's become entertainment, um, even the stock market is entertainment for a lot of people. You know, is it up today or is it down today? You know, did he score the touchdown or did he? Or was he tackled? It's like everything is entertainment. Politics is entertainment of the sort of the worst sort. You know, it's it's a cage match. It's it's wrestling. It's mud wrestling. It's 
wait a minute, maybe politics is really different from that. So, so I tell in the book, this, this short story, and I'll be real, real quick here, but I'm, I just spoken to a bunch of uh, heads of uh, IT, uh, information technology and chief information officers at some of the biggest companies in the world at the Ritz-Carlton Battery Park in New York City. And we were having breakfast the next morning in this big room with huge glass walls overlooking the Statue of Liberty. And in the morning sunshine, the Statue of Liberty was just glowing and talk turns to politics. And here are the heads of, you know, information technology at Bank of America, at DreamWorks, movies, at uh, Universal Pictures, at just all these huge, uh, you know, AOL was still Amazon. And talk turns to politics. And in the middle of this, all, all this, I said, well, you know, Aristotle believed that politics is about how best to live well together. And there was this <laughs> laugh around the table, people choking on their coffee. I thought <laughs> half the people were going to choke on their biscuit bite. They just took it. And when the laughter died down, which was not the, <laughs> not the result I expected, one guy looked at everybody else around this big table and then looked at me and said, how did we fall so far? I mean, there's Aristotle. Politics, how best to live well together. Politics, people in partnership for a shared purpose. Politics, all about living well. How did we fall so far? And, and part of it is treating politics like a sport, that we are participant. We're not participants. We're, well, we participate only as spectators. That's the kind of participation we do, spectators cheering on your team, booing the other team. Let's just go back to the original views of what politics are all about. And it's nothing to do with that whatsoever. It's about what I call these days. I don't even think I put this in the book. I think I came up with this after the book came out because you got to have a label for what you're doing in philosophy. So I call it contributory localism. Hmm. Contribute to your local context as much as you can. When I take my walks in the morning, I want to pick up trash on the street. I want to tell somebody if there's broken glass in front of their driveway because I know they walk their dog every day. I don't want their dog to cut his paws on the broken glass. I want to contribute to my locality so that it can contribute well to the greater context and the greater context and the greater context. And that's what really led to this book. But but what cued me in was reading the founders of our nation, not just reading the Declaration of Independence. And there's a great video online, you know, uh, Google um, actors reading the Declaration of Independence. Uh, Norman assembled all these great actors who take turns reading the Declaration, and it comes alive in a ways that it can't even hope to on the page. That's why they did these 200 copies to be read aloud throughout the colonies with heart, with passion. And see, people think of philosophy as the opposite of heart and passion. It's just the cool intellect dealing with ideas. No, no. Philosophy at its best is everything, heart and passion and mind. And, and so uh, I went back to the founders and then who did they read? They read the great philosophers. They read John Locke, John Stuart Mill. They read Plato. They read Aristotle. Okay, let's go back there. And so I ended up writing this little book, taking people out of the context of our current squabbles and back to the common ground on which the nation was built. It's like, if you ever want to get together with people and accomplish anything worthwhile, you got to find common ground. And so the book is all about common ground. And people kept warning me when I was writing it, you can't do this because there is no common ground. People are so divided on so many things. No, no, there's always common ground because every divided person is a human being. 
And so I'm going to go back to some of those genuine human needs and aspirations. So that's why I want to build this book around. Can I ask you about, you know, that idea and wisdom? Like as you're talking, I'm thinking of um, the beautiful inaugural address by by Lincoln. You know, we're not enemies, but friends and kind of making this call to the better angels of our nature. Maybe something else he said is, uh, you know, someone that agrees with you. 80 percent, you know, it's not it's not a thing. And it's like uh, some of the divisiveness is, you know, over people, you know, agree on 90 percent of of whatever it may be. You know, it seems like, I mean, and one of the reasons of starting this podcast for my own curiosity and questions, it's like yeah. the even the term wisdom is kind of, uh, I wouldn't say lost its like flavor, but it, you just don't hear it much. And it seems like yeah. there's a certain level of maybe wisdom that is needed to understand some of these things or, you know, a certain, and maybe this is an opportunity to talk about the perspective and context around uh, wisdom that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. What, what comes up there? That's a, I mean, that's a great issue to bring up because even in the time of Socrates, he said that we tend to think about and talk about the things that matter the least. We tend to think about and talk about the most. And uh, we, we think about and talk about the least, the things that matter the most. And we get it upside down. And that's the way human life has often been. So, so we lose sense of words like wisdom and virtue. Uh, they, they just like sound like old-fashioned, kind of antiquated terms from a Victorian past, you know, or Puritan existence. And what do they have to do with now, man? It's all about money and power and being an influencer and getting things to happen. And what a wisdom and virtue. And okay, I'll take you back a, a few years, right before the pandemic shut us down. Um, there was a guy visiting my town from Madrid, Spain, a college student. And he knew somebody who knew me and he wanted to get together with me for breakfast. And I said, okay. So we went go to this little dive place for, for breakfast. And we sit down and rather than him you know, asking me a question like, well, what's good on the menu here? You know, he says, okay, professor, my first question is, what is wisdom? <laughs> he says, what is wisdom? And I was like, okay, you know, we're going to go right dive off the deep end here. And so I had kind of a canned answer that I gave him to start with. I said, well, I think, I think wisdom is embodied insight for living well. Uh, it's not just what you think, it's what you do. It's embodied. It's essentially embodied. You, you can never have of a person who's a wise man who lives like a fool because you cannot be wise if you live like a fool. Uh, it's a misunderstanding of wisdom to think that if your head is full of enough slogans, enough aphorisms and epigrams, you're a wise person. No, 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 no. Uh, wisdom is embodied insight for living well. And and I thought that was all I was going to say, but but then, so 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 wisdom, unless you have a certain kind of discernment of thought, emotion, attitude, and action, you don't have wisdom. So wisdom is this cluster of stuff that you've got to be living to have it, and yet there's another meaning of the word. And so I sat there for a second, 
he was kind of nodding his head. And I said, I've never said this before. In fact, I've never even thought this before, but maybe wisdom in its other sense is the distillation of this discernment that's been cultivated through the centuries and across cultures by different people. So there's a personal aspect that I just gave you, but there's a propositional aspect as well that reflects the personal, never substitutes for it, but reflects it. It's the rules and aphorisms and pieces of advice that help us to cultivate the discernment to live well. And it's about two things. And this is what I said for the first time ever. I said, I think wisdom is about, in that sense, is about guidance and guardrails. And he said, not a native English speaker, he says, what are guardrails? I said, you know, you're up in a mountain road, you're driving around a twisty mountain road, there's a metal railing to keep your car from going off the side. Oh, oh, okay, okay, guardrails. I said, wisdom is two things. And in the last 30 years, we've been given one of those two things and not much of the, the other. Wisdom is guidance. It's like imagine a lighthouse at a distance showing you the way forward, right? It it gives you a a destination, a sense of direction. It gives you the light to get there. That's guidance. But then the guardrails are to keep you from falling over the edge as you go. I said most of what passes as practical philosophy these days is guidance. Do this, do that, do this, do that cultivate this. You need you need small habits, atomic habits. You need to uh, do this every morning. You need to do this every night. But the guardrails have kind of dropped away a little bit. And, and that's half of wisdom. Uh, so that's why we see a lot of people with positive stuff. They still crash and burn. Um, I think one of the greatest caution, cautionary tales on success ever written was Mary Shelley's short novel, Frankenstein. Because Victor Frankenstein was this brilliant young guy who did everything the motivational guys of the 20th and 21st century would tell him to do. And he succeeded. What I want to call monster success and the massive failure of loosening a monster into the world he couldn't control. He didn't have guardrails. He had plenty of guidance, but he had no guardrails. And so my literary agent is shopping around a book right now called the Frankenstein factor, monster success and massive failure. How do people real, why do so many really smart people do so many really stupid things? Uh, You can use this in politics, uh, American domestic politics, people creating monsters they can't control, international foreign affairs, Putin creating monsters he can't control. Uh, You can use this in AI. You can use this with respect to really creative financial investment vehicles back in 2007 and 2008 that took down, almost took down the economy, right? It's like we, we just have this going on forever. So I use some ideas from Mary Shelley, not just from Frankenstein, which she wrote when she was 18 years old. But the next book, in, published in 1826, that's about a pandemic in the 21st century that kills everybody. Most people don't even know Mary Shelley wrote about that. Yeah, Mary Shelley. It's, it's called The Last Man. It's told by the last man alive after a virus kills everybody in, the, in our oh, century. Wow. And, but it's about the same things that Frankenstein Factor is about. It's about self-focused, grandiose ambition out of control. No guardrails, no risk management, no wisdom uh, uh, constraints, no sense of consequences. Just, I want to be great. I want to be famous. I want to do something people will remember forever uh, and the consequences of that. So I use Mary Shelley's ideas to go back to the oldest human epic, Gilgamesh, 
to go through the Iliad, the Odyssey, um, the plays of Sophocles, Xenophon's education of Cyrus, which Peter Drucker, the management guru, said is the greatest book on leadership ever written, and nobody reads it. And I think he's right, but not for the reasons he thought. Uh, through to Beowulf, uh, uh, Don Quixote, Moby Dick, into the 20th century Sinclair Lewis's stuff. There are all these cautionary tales, the guardrails, that we've been ignoring while we just soak up the guidance. Do this, do that, do this, do that. Here's what they did at Apple. Here's what Steve Jobs did. Here's what, you know, oh, I want to do that too, without any of the sense of the cautionary stuff. And so you see foolishness on steroids. Zuckerberg never sat around his dorm room saying, I want to take down democracy around the world. I want to help people get dates. But he just would then then that fed the ego and that fed the and then all of a sudden we get the problems we get. Elon's another example. There are so many examples of this these days. So uh so yeah, I mean, wisdom, right? I mean, we thick <laughs> concept. It's a multi-layered concept, and people have no sense of that now. And we do a great favor to our culture to try to insist that people understand what wisdom is all about. You write in the book that citizenship isn't just a legal status, it's a moral calling. Yeah. And I'm curious to like follow up on this guardrails. Yeah. Um, like it's a moral calling. Like I'm thinking of uh Marcus Aurelius writing this meditation to himself about kind of duties and obligations to get out of bed and do the business <laughs> of, of being a, a human. Yeah. You know, our a moral calling or duties and obligations are those examples of guardrails on a you know from the from the individual perspective yeah they they have both sides to them i think but the guardrail side is really important because what marcus understood at a really intuitive level is i don't exist just for me and and that's a big piece of news to a lot of people in our time right uh, i exist for the greater community. I am a part of a whole. Uh, nothing is good for me that's not good for the community. Those are some powerful pieces of insight Marcus had. And he tried to remind himself of that frequently because there's this gravitational pull of the ego. Uh, it's almost like wisdom is rocket fuel to help us escape the gravity of foolishness. It's like we got to we, we we got to break out of the gravity. We 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 we've got we need a certain kind of propulsion to keep us from being egocentric monomaniacs about what we think wrongly is our own good. And for Marcus, it could be something as simple as just staying in bed all morning. And he had to remind himself of his duties, his obligations. And we think of duties as obligations almost as a an unfortunate necessity in life. Um, and he seemed to think I'm as very different from that. It, these are important ingredients in living a good life. And, and I can't live a good life unless the people around me are living a good life. And that's what a lot of businesses are just beginning to wake up to with respect to politics. You can't have good commerce, good business in a cultural wasteland where everybody's at war with everybody else. Uh, that's not, again, back to Pascal in context, that's not the context in which business can flourish. People need to be flourishing, right? And so our, polit our politicians need to wake up to some of these guardrails 
uh, or else we end up not just with a environmental catastrophe. We end up with cultural catastrophe, with social catastrophe, with economic catastrophe. And it's in our day that we are being, what an exciting time to be, to be alive, because it's almost like every possible human problem is on steroids right now. Every possible human problem is projected on the biggest scale where we've been able to tread water and ignore a lot of important things about wisdom, both the guidance and the guardrails. But we're at a time now where things as diverse as the environment and AI are calling us to not make any more big mistakes because guess what? At this point, such magnitude of foolishness is not no longer survivable. And so we're being forced to re-examine you know, our lives, our perspectives, and to go back and look for wisdom in the past for what we face next in our own future. Hearing you talk about duties and obligations and everything we've been talking about, I don't know, it's making me think um, in the way of like the everyday patriot, some of our naturalized citizens, for example, in this country are some of the most, you know, patriotic oh, yeah. in the way of, of this thing of, of becoming a naturalized citizen. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, and for individuals that were born here, this citizenship, there's no sort of, um, you know, unless you impose some of these duties and obligations, yeah. this moral calling, yeah. you know, there isn't, it's like this freely given thing. Yeah. <laughs> I know it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, I used to tell my students because a lot of students thought that just being in the classroom, they're going to get an education. (laughs) And and I use the old metaphor, sleeping in a garage doesn't make you a car, you know? I mean, just (laughs) being in a place, and that's almost what you're talking about, of of, uh, citizens, most citizens of the U.S. just born here, we're here, you know, we're citizens. We don't understand I had the great joy of giving a talk at the, I think it was at the time, the biggest naturalization uh, ceremony in the country in Southport, North Carolina, on the 4th of July many years ago. It was a swelteringly hot day where a huge crowd of people from all over the world who were becoming citizens that day. And just to talk to these people and how fired up they were about being players on a team. You know, that's what citizenship was about. It it was about being players on the team. Even if you're benched for a while, you're important in the practice sessions for the the A team that goes in on that championship game. You know, everybody has a role. And Notre Dame, I taught the championship team of 1988 in my intro to philosophy class among the multitude of other students. And they had a slogan that year. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. That's Mm. citizenship. I'm here for you. Whereas most people get the other way around. You're here for me. If you don't know that, I'm not having anything to do with you. Uh, That's the opposite. We've fallen into opposites land. And that's what foolishness is all about, the opposite of wisdom. And hopefully, I've, I've been trying as a public philosopher since 1995 to make the culture wiser. And what's happened to the culture since 1995 has gotten much more foolish. So I'm really good at what I do. But I'm all I'm always optimistic that the worse things get, the more of an optimist I become because people can tolerate almost intolerable things. But when things get literally intolerable, it's an imaginative wake up call to everybody. The pendulum can swing only so far before it starts to swing back. And I think that's the moment we're at now where people are open to little books like The Everyday Patriot. 
I have heard, Josh, from people on opposite ends of the political spectrum, not the total crazies. We're not going to listen to anybody, but the, their own. But but everybody else, people who are very liberal, I love this book. People who have always voted conservative, I love this book because I'm bringing people back to the things that should matter to all of them. I love that. And uh, such an important point uh, uh, in the way of optimism. We're, our, our time is... Seriously, flown by here. So let me ask uh, just a, a couple more questions. And sure. one is this um, beautiful phrase. You referenced this book titled Perfecting a Peace uh, of the World. Yeah. Um, I love that title and just this idea. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a. it was a book on business and life that I bought, you know, decades ago. And I still got it on my shelf over here. And the whole concept is, you know, None of us is called upon to make the world a perfect, ideal place, right? Uh, Plato had this notion from the very beginning that the ideals aren't part of this world, but they can still steer us. It's important to have ideals, but you should never expect a relationship to be ideal, a political party to be ideal, a policy to be ideal. That's not what we're given in this world. Ideals are aspirational, but what we should try to do one of our aspirations should be to make our little piece of the earth where we are right now. I might not be able to do anything about what goes on in Washington. I may have very little impact about that. But guess what? I can make my neighborhood a really good place. And, you know, maybe I've got a couple of ornery neighbors. Well, I can make part of the neighborhood a really good place. Well, guess what? I can make my yard and my house a place of respite, an oasis for anybody. Uh Perfecting a piece of the world means never really arriving and saying, okay, that's done. But it's an ongoing enterprise of just trying to offer to the world one little piece of that goodness we all need. And if we can scale down our ambitions from all the monomaniacal megalomaniac stuff that everybody wants to you have the biggest hit record ever, the biggest movie ever. I want to be a movie star rather than I want to be a movie actor. I want to be an influencer rather than just I want to gather some people on social media that are like-minded and we learn from each other. Everybody's got these extraordinary things. In fact, I was even asked about the book, The Everyday Patriot, what you attribute values to the founders. And how do you know they even had those as values? Because, you know, justice and equality and all this stuff. They had slaves. They did this. They did that. And I said, okay, there are two ways to talk about values. One is in the absolutist sense, in which if all your actions and thoughts and emotions and attitudes aren't completely consistent with that value, it's not your value. Well, if we have an absolutist view about values, no, nobody really has much by way of values. I don't think that's a practical use of the concept. I like an aspirational approach to values. If that value is your lighthouse, and when you get off track, you look back at that lighthouse and you try your best to get there and you slip and you fall and there's still that lighthouse, you're, you're shooting for that place. That's your value. You don't have to absolutely embody it perfectly in everything you do. But if it guides you and directs you and gives you the guardrails, however imperfectly you live it, but you're trying that's one of your values. And do you think about that idea of something aspirational, the the ideal, as like in a way, maybe it's not possible. Like it's it's an infinite path, yeah, if you will. Right. That's right. So we shouldn't be disappointed that we're we're not there ideally and absolutely, but we're committed. 
and we're it's a directional thing rather than a destinational thing it's a directional thing and if and rather than a completeness thing it's a commitment thing if we have that mm-hmm. commitment in a certain direction we can be really proud of that we can feel really good about that we can call other people to that and if they point out to us we're not completely that we haven't arrived at that destination yet it's like uh, yeah i know but that's where we're going you want to come with me you know <laughs> <laughs> I love that it's not a completeness; it's a yeah. it's a commitment. Yeah. I love that. So let me ask a a final wrap up question. We've already talked uh, about maybe uh, you know how to think about or define wisdom, but let me ask you a slightly different question connected to that. So you've, I would say, in, in my words, been searching for wisdom for for many decades, not just. Uh, Aristotle and Plato, not just Western philosophy, but all sorts of stuff from the classics to Eastern philosophy. Um, it's something we do here on on the podcast in the hundred and some episodes we have many different wisdom traditions. Mm, I don't good. exactly know why that's uh, important. It, it, yeah. it feels important to cover different wisdom traditions for yeah. some reason. But, you know, why is that, in your view, an important thing to essentially search widely in the way of wisdom, or however you would put it? The same principle that's behind our quest for diversity in the workplace, in educational settings, A diversity of voices means every possible angle on a situation. Our blind spots need not be their blind spots, that people from a different tradition who lived in a different environment, who grew up in a different way, can help us understand stuff in in a new in a new way. So I got another book I finished during the pandemic that I worked on for I worked on the Frankenstein Factor for twenty years. I worked on this other book for thirty years. I've got seven chapters on Lao Tzu and seven chapters on Confucius and seven chapters on a medieval Islamic theologian in seven chapters on Ralph Waldo Emerson. I mean, I'm going all over the world with, uh, you know, a bunch of figures representing different wisdom traditions, but showing their, as much as they differ on theoretical things, there's this remarkable convergence on practical wisdom. They will say the same things in different ways and different, give us different facets of understanding. And it's like, you can't get it on first reading often. I, a few years ago during the pandemic, I went back and reread the Odyssey four times through, cover to cover, in three different translations, and I reread the Iliad twice. Now, I'd read each once or twice in my life, once as a student, when it's kind of the thing like, why are they making me read this? But I came to realize that the Odyssey is all about the power of purpose. Odysseus has a purpose to get home. And he's tempted and he falls short and he falls into inconsistent behavior time and time again. But his sense of purpose is so strong, he overcomes all the temptations eventually and he gets home. Uh, It's about the power of purpose. The Iliad is about the power of partnership. The whole story starts where the partnership between the leader of the Greeks, Agamemnon, and their chief warrior, Achilles, it breaks apart. Because each of them is more concerned about me uh, than the community. 
and each of them, I'm not getting as much uh, spoils from this battle as Achilles is. I want some of his, you know, Achilles, I'm not getting as much, disrespecting each other, fighting each other rather than the Trojan. And then you have other parts of the Iliad where beautiful partnerships work in incredible ways. It ends up being a book about part the power of partnership, just like Dracula. Nobody told me Dracula is about the power of partnership. You might guess it from the title of Three Musketeers, but there are four guys who show the power of partnership. All this great literature showing us from different contexts, different cultures, different historical periods, things we need to know now. So I think that diversity of voices is so important to fill in our blind spots, to educate us in new ways. And it happens in my life all the time. I'm glad you do this, man. You're so good at this. I mean, I I could tell for Mm -hmm. each of your guests, it's probably the highlight of the year being on this podcast because you're so good at asking questions. You're so good in your own quest across all the diversities of wisdom traditions that you help any guest who's lucky enough to come and be on this podcast with you. You help us to see new things in new ways while we're talking. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Tom. It's it's a real pleasure, and I, I appreciate those kind words. Do you have a title on the the book you just mentioned with the with the seven um, seven oh, chapters yeah. on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it was originally called the Wisdom Collector, and that may be the title. Uh, and now, though, the, the Dummies people, you know, they asked me in the '90s to launch Lifetime Learning for the Dummies books by doing philosophy for dummies, along with the curator of the Metropolitan Museum. He did art for dummies. I did philosophy for dummies. We launched the humanities in uh, the Dummies series, and they came to me this past January and said, "Stoicism is so big around the world right now in the military, and business, and sports, and entertainment. Could you write Stoicism for dummies by September?" And this was like, I don't have time to do it, but I found one of my former graduate students, a great philosopher in his own right. He's a historian. I'm a conceptualist. We did together Stoicism for Dummies. And so I mentioned that it's out in January. Uh, I mentioned that, because, which is crazy time frame for a publisher. I mentioned it because the Wisdom Collector may have the title Beyond the Stoics. Because everybody's fascinated mm. with the practical practical wisdom in the Stoics. And I want to show how, in addition to the Stoics, you can go beyond the Stoics and find equal or more richness in thought from the Chinese, from the Muslims. From, in fact, when I wrote the chapters years ago as a newsletter for presidents of companies I was speaking to, the president of Ryder Trucks, you know, truck rental company, wrote me, I'd sent him a little 10-pager on a Hadrat Ali, a medieval Islamic theologian. And he said, Tom, I have my executive team read all of your newsletters. Uh, give it to them on a Friday. The next Monday, we have an executive session. We talk about what you've written about, whether it's wow. Zoom, whether it's Confucius. He said, I got a question for you. How did a medieval Islamic theologian know everything that Ryder Trucks needs to be doing now? <laughs> have a successful business. I said, dude, human nature has never changed. That's why we can listen to the old folks, uh, those who've gone before us, and glean a lot of light for our path now. Well, beautiful. I love it. This has been great, Tom. And again, uh, the book we've been chatting about today is The Everyday Patriot. I think it's a must read. Um, but obviously, you've written many others. Um, is there any 
thing you'd you'd share with the listeners or you know particular websites that you might point them to sure uh, another is i just happen to have these on my desk <laughs> another nice. is my short novel the oasis within which leads to a series of seven other bigger novels which is kind of an epic story in egypt in 1934 and 1935 i think it's the best philosophy i've ever done and was the most unexpected project of my life the oasis within uh, a therapist told me at a dinner party, I think every therapist in America should have all their patients read this book. This is everything I try to teach my patients, but it's in this vivid metaphorical story form that is so much more powerful than just abstract ideas. Then I would mention my book that came out right before the pandemic. People thought wrongly I was a genius about how to deal with difficult change. Came out three months before the big shutdown. Plato's Lemonade Stand. When life hands you lemons, make lemonade. Everybody says it. Nobody says how. Boy, it turns out the philosophers said a lot about how to do it. So if people want to look at the Everyday Patriot, want to go to the Oasis Within, Plato's Lemonade Stand, my website is Tom V as in Victor Morris, uh, dot com. And uh, they can explore books there. They can find out what I'm doing. They can shoot me a note. I would love to hear from your viewers and listeners because people teach me new things every day. That's the exciting thing about being a philosopher. It's never over. It's always <laughs> going on. <laughs> well, beautiful. And uh, not only lots of uh, appreciation for your work in the world, but uh, lots of appreciation for the enthusiasm that you bring to the search for wisdom and, uh, and being a practical philosopher. So, Tom Morris, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. Thanks, Josh. It was great. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. You can learn more at perennialleader.com. There you'll find links to show notes. Until next time, be wise and be well. <laughs>